0: 90.7 KPFK Los Angeles From Public Radio Secrets and Shadows Kerry Sudler Harrison is a descendant from a slave-holding plantation family He discovered that he shares his last name with some black residents who still live around the old plantation He took a recorder and went back to apologize to the black descendants of his family's slaves and found much more than he bargained for
1: and uh like the colored man today that uh, as he gets his education and as he acts more like he should act like a human being should act he is accepted more and more and the only thing that keeps him from not being completely accepted is they are different secrets and
0: i'm aaron sanders Kerry Sudler Harrison is a Los Angeles-based public radio host and journalist who, on a recent trip to Maryland, discovered that his ancestors were slaveholders, is here today to talk about what that experience was like and what he hopes to do with it. Carrie Harrison, welcome. Thank you so much. When I hear you talk about this story and others, um, what strikes me is how unusual you are. Thank you. <laughs> but, I'd say the no, same about you, but I'm kidding. But but what the thing is, is um, I think one of the things we don't talk about often enough is how we land in this in our moment in time, and the burden of that history can make us want to hide from it. Um, you didn't hide. Uh, you confronted, and you learned some troubling details. There's no manual
2: on how to do this. There kind of ought to be. I mean, there's manuals on everything. How to fly a plane, miss manners. Manuals on everything, but not on this one. Because it's not supposed to really exist. We're taught about it, but that's it. After school, wash your hands, move along. So
0: history is about the truth. How is that productive? Well, it's productive because it's honest. And we all have parts of our history that we we would like to conceal. It's one thing if you just
2: had a few small family stories, and maybe they're true or not, no real way to research it. But I have all this documentation, you know, ancient Revolutionary War, pre-Revolutionary War documentation in print with names and numbers and all of this stuff in it that tell an extremely clear story. And so... Uh, You know, I I felt I should go find some of the descendants of my family's slaves who will, of course, carry my last name. That was the way it was done then and apologize to them for uh, human theft, for whatever, and at least reconnect the circle and hope something better comes out of it, Uh, a relationship that wasn't there before that now can be, where we can help each other, because in uh, the political climate in which we all live today, uh, community and society is more necessary than ever.
0: Kerry Sudler Harrison discovered his family once owned slaves. He took a recorder back to his ancestral home in Maryland and found much more than he bargained for.
3: Watch your step. Where were the uh, slaves kept around here? Most of them in the basement. They had slave quarters. We don't have any actual shackles or anything down yeah. there. you got to realize that this was all dirt floors.
0: That is your distant cousin, Foster Willis, giving you a tour of Sledmore, one of two plantations your family owned in Sudlersville on the east coast of Maryland. When did you first find out your family owned slaves?
2: When I was growing up, my father would talk about it now and then with sort of a sense of pride. And I didn't think that much of it because, you know, didn't everybody own slaves? I mean, you sort of assume it. It's kind of like if you eat a certain kind of food all the time, you assume everybody else does. You know, we had this grandfather clock that was built in the early 1700s and all this sort of legacy. And I just didn't pay much attention. And when he died. I inherited a family Bible that was written in this quill ink or passages, pages and pages of it in the mid-1700s. And in it, it listed humans and what they had sold for in shillings and pounds and early dollars. And it was just so clinical. It was shocking to me because this is not the experience of everybody else. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so it was really kind of troubling to me. And I didn't really understand it, and also, honestly, I didn't really believe it. I mean, can this be true?
0: I'd like to read a few entries from the Sudler family record because I think it really puts it in black and white, just what we're talking about here. Let me just read a few entries, and I'm quoting. December 18th, Noah bought two Negro boys, 210 pounds of Mr. George toll, Vic, Jock, and Jack— and the said toll sold one negro woman named sarah to michael murray for 100 dollars. judah had a little one in the cornfield while gathering peas wednesday september 25th 1811 a boy child named pedum. arnold ran away on whit sunday may 21st 1825 and was taken up in the delaware state on monday the 23rd by mr peter stewart tubman Sudler went up after Arnold on Thursday the 26th. All this really makes it real, doesn't it?
2: Yeah, it really does. And you wonder what your part is in this. I mean, of course I wasn't alive then. Most of my white friends or white associates will say, hey, it wasn't you. You weren't there. But something occurred to me a few years ago, which is really simple, that if I choose to carry my family's name, and there might be some good stuff attached to that, you know, I have to really carry its full legacy. You can't just be all the good stuff and then deselect all the icky part and just show the world the highlight reel. Because much of the social access, if you will,
0: that I have is clearly earned on the backs of other people and on their arms and legs. You did something pretty unusual after you discovered this family history. You went out with a recorder and talked to a lot of relatives... Some on the black side and some on the white side. We have a bit of tape from a white relative, 90-year-old William Sudler Goodhand, showing that racism is not just a thing of the past.
1: Colored people, and to me, in my lifetime here, were never any kind of a hindrance or any kind of anything. They, they were just what was here. That was part of the way life was and uh we as you pick and choose your friends we pick and chose ours and they pick and chose theirs and everybody got along pretty well and uh like the colored man today that uh, as he gets his education and as he acts more like he should act like a human being should act he is accepted more and more and the only thing that keeps him from not being completely accepted is they are different
4: that's really something.
2: Yeah, it is to have been standing on a plantation that once was a slave plantation and is now surrounded by uh, soybeans and corn and this and that. And to have a guy nine generations later, still family, sipping on iced tea or mint julep, whatever it was, and tell you about colored people. What was odd to me is after 80 years, I thought, well, how many have you met with the last name and what are they like? And, of course, not a finger had ever been lifted to go meet them.
0: You did something quite unusual. You chased down a lot of descendants of your family slaves who actually have the same name as you. Let's hear another bit of tape.
2: I have to say I was a little nervous to call because part of the reason I'm calling is that The reason that you and I probably have the same last name is not through the best circumstances in history. Mm -hmm. And so I just – this may sound a little weird, but I just want to apologize for any difficulty that, that life is as far as racism and all the rest of it. And I want to let you know that you have somebody with the same last name who's interested in having a level playing field for everybody. And that I don't suppose the white side of the family ever apologized to the black side. I, I really don't know if they ever did or didn't, but I just want to let you know that it does not continue even in silence.
3: Yeah, I certainly appreciate that and uh, certainly welcome that. So that's a good feeling that goes with that. Let me assure you there are no issues uh, with me along those lines trying to understand all the things that happened. I guess it's more important me just to try to understand, you know, what went on. Yeah, I'm thrilled just the fact that you called.
0: So you deliberately set out to apologize to some of the black descendants of your family's slaves. Yeah.
2: I was scared. I have to admit that. I didn't know what was going to happen. You know, I didn't know if they were going to yell, you know, swear at me or hit me or I don't know. It was really a major, you know, felt really risky to do it. But I had to do it. I had to do it. And whatever was going to happen would have been worth it. And it has been worth it. I couldn't find any record. And I don't know of any instance where my family has ever officially or formally or informally apologized to any of these people. And there are hundreds of them and hundreds of them out there, descendants. And um, I think it has to happen. I think it's important that they know that they're important people, as important as I am or you are or anything else. And that if I don't do anything about this, it just continues and a larger invisible oppression continues and I'm a participant of it.
0: We have another bit of tape and I think this is you with another black Sudler after conducting a social experiment where you each try to buy a shirt at a high-end clothing store. Your white skin gives you access to
4: almost anything that you want. I'm followed in grocery stores, and I'm followed in department stores still. Is it better? Yeah. It's better in my own lifetime. It's better. But it's not perfect. It hasn't improved. And white people still say, yeah, I have black friends, and they say that I'm not racist. But if you have to make that statement, then there must be some racism somewhere. I certainly am racist still. I still have to work past all of that stuff because there's jealousy, envy, and sometimes hate when I look at the things that other people have access to that I don't have.
0: What did you say to him?
2: <sighs> I had, was talking about access, and I had been in the White House earlier that day because I talked my way into it which I know how to do. And I really didn't know what to do, so I small-talked the guy up in the beginning and just asked him, you know, what's it like to walk around in a town with this name? It's your last name, but you're not the white guy, so maybe you don't feel the same. And he really did turn and just put it to me really brutally like that. And what a wake-up call, because it never occurred to me That if he and I were shopping in the same place, that the security guys are going to be following him around just because he's black. And maybe I'm the one stealing. But he's the one that they follow just because of his skin color. You know, one of the other conversations we had is that ever since he was born, he was taught that he was lazy and stupid and ugly I mean, imagine growing up your whole life thinking you're lazy, stupid, and ugly, and all of your people are too. So you never really kind of climb out of that because you're told it's hopeless and don't even bother. And here I was raised not to think that I was stupid or lazy or or ugly, but that I can do whatever I want and be the next president, that kind of thing. He was never told that. So I was handed a whole different kind of access, two people with the same name, except one is black and one is white. And here he is just trying to buy a shirt, and they're tracking him down like a dog. It's just really wrong,
0: you know? What did you say to him? Did you tell him you're sorry?
2: I did. I said, you know, I I would like to apologize for the way that your life is right now and any participation that my family may have had in it in the last several hundred years in creating a world that is the way it is for you right now, that you were brought here against your will, your family, your great-great-great-great-grandfather nine generations ago, maybe in chains, you know, may- whatever went on, that what's uh, really painful that has created a reality for him today that is so much more difficult than my reality and needlessly so. I really don't know what you say to somebody. I mean, I wasn't given the manual or the the lessons on how to do this. And I've gone it alone. And a lot of white people really resent me and think that I have no business doing this. I wasn't there. It wasn't my fault. But I carry my family's name and I carry what it's done, both good and bad. What do you do in life? You just try and do the next right thing, even if you don't understand it.
0: You know, there is another response that some people might have to all of this, a more cynical response, that really what you're doing as a white American is trying to appease your guilty conscience by apologizing.
2: I wouldn't deny it. I wouldn't deny it. I do have a guilty conscience. I mean, I grew up around a whole lot of serious bigotry, and I saw people get hurt, and I've seen people get hurt. I do feel bad about that and I'm sensitive to it. So it is hard work on a daily basis to try and overcome bigotry and fear because that's really what it is. It's fear. I don't really know how to do it. I sure wasn't taught it in school.
0: Well, it's obvious how powerful this whole experience has been for you. I mean, how important it has been to apologize. Do you have any sense of whether the black settlers you talk to the descendants of your family's slaves, whether they get anything out of your apologies?
2: Well, only what they said was that they were really glad that I had called. I don't think they knew what to say either, because every single one of them had never had this experience and had never expected ever to have this experience, just as I never expected to do it or to ever hear of it, really.
0: And you have to wonder, is saying sorry enough?
2: I don't suppose it's enough, but all I can really do, because I don't have piles of money to pay people or do anything, but it's like a living amend, if that makes sense, where my behavior does not contribute to their continued oppression. I mean, that's kind of all I can do. I I don't suppose it's enough. I I wish I could do more, but at this point in my life, this is kind of all I can do right now.
0: That was Carrie Sudler-Harrison, and I'm Aaron Sanders. Coming up, do white people have a responsibility to address the misdeeds of their colonial past? Secretsandshadows.com
4: Greece is cheap. But the airfare costs a fortune. Paris? Not much closer, and again, airfare... What about Puerto Vallarta? Let's face it, flying anywhere is just too expensive.
5: Wait, what's this?
4: travel it's that easy so call now and start packing 800-650-6367 800-650-6367 800-650-6367 that's 800-650-6367
0: secretsandshadows.com aaron sanders with you with this special edition of secrets and shadows Kerry Sudler Harrison is a Los Angeles-based public radio host and journalist who leads hidden history tours around the world. Harrison, who on a recent trip to Maryland discovered that his ancestors were slaveholders, is here today to talk about what that experience was like and what he hopes to do with it. Now that you know this about your family and that you've investigated it and lived with it a bit, has it changed the way you feel about you? Well, yeah, it's uh, it's an unhappy
2: surprise when you learn this. And I have a family Bible that goes back to the late 1700s. Um, what a great place to hide information. Who's going to go look in a Bible? Nobody, really, nobody. I don't care how pious you are. You're not going to pick up somebody's Bible and flip through it. And that's where you list your slaves and how many shillings, pounds and shillings back then um, you know, your British subjects back in the seventeen hundreds, sixteen hundreds. We came over in sixteen forty five and landed on Kent Island on the eastern shore of Maryland. And back then it was the state of Maryland created a law that said you had to have slaves. And the reason is is that the king, who's developing all of the United States and the thirteen colonies, has spent a fortune on this and he wants a big old return on his investment. So he thinks it's a great idea to have all these slaves working their asses off and bringing back the booty. And, you know, you find out that your family was participating in that, and not unwillingly so either. I don't know whether they were mean or cruel. I don't see much evidence of that. Um, At the time, George Washington... um, would come through and stay overnight at the plantation on his way to D.C. and all of that. And the plantation house is still there, built in 1713, called Sledmore. And what was once cotton and tobacco is now soybeans for probably Chinese customers. My direct family, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, they came over – or went to Chicago from the Eastern Shore in the very late 1800s after the Chicago fire, they were Quakers, and started the first ever public housing project in America, in Chicago. Um, so they were good people. Their family, going back even further, were participating in slavery. And so I went back to the plantation to see who was living there, and if they had learned anything or what you know, what was going on. It also occurred to me that I have no history or information that ever suggested that any of us ever apologized to any of the black descendants for human theft. Um, It's a given. I think many people know that the White House was built by slaves. Uh, You know, the backbone of this country was measured in literally arms and legs.
5: My name is Fountain Hughes. I was born in Charlottesville, Virginia. My grandfather belonged to Thomas Jefferson. My grandfather was 115 years old when he died. And now I am 101 years old. We were slaves, we belonged to people. They sell us like they sell horses and cows. And hog and all I get have a auction bench. If I thought that I'd ever be a
1: slave again, I'd take a gun and just end it all right away.
2: And we still, to this day, don't have even a proper memorial to slavery in the National Mall. We have it to the Vietnam War. We have it to the Korean War. We have it to this, to that. But just a little light lip service to slavery and nothing really considerably real. And so I wanted to see if there were anybody, uh, people with my last name, um, and find out what their experience was like and, and bring them into the history and try to make things right in ways that I could. I don't have the money or any of that stuff to, to do the kind of restitution that I wish I could. but if I can at least offer some understanding and ways in which I could help, that I would want to do that. So I went back to Maryland to see what I would learn. What did you learn? Well, I learned that there's a kind of, I'm going to make up a term here, genteel bigotry. So there's bigotry, where you say the N-word, and, and then there's genteel bigotry where you talk about colored people, and you're not saying anything really, but you're just sort of got a way that's kind of like foghorn leghorn, <laughs> like a Warner Brothers cartoon, where it's kind of light and comical, but you're ending up with the same message..
1: Well, this was slavery country, and uh, Marmaduke Goodhand was a slaver, and he, uh, there were three Marmadukes, three generations, and they were slavers. Uh, Civil war, they fought the family fought on both sides of the war. Uh, Maryland is kind of a screwed up state, you know, this is really pretty far south over here, and the Goodhands only had a couple, as far as I know, the settlers had a bunch, but by the, I, I guess they they really never were in my lifetime farmers. They probably ended about the Civil War. The Southerner family, yeah. as far as farming is concerned, the uh, slavery was just a way of life. It, you know, it's just uh, it's the way it was. The uh, what were what were the slaves principally doing? What was the the crop? Crops, uh, corn. Well, I don't know. Uh, but tobacco was a fairly good crop. I would imagine that there's still some black people that carry the southern
2: name around here.
1: Oh yeah, there are. Right. I, I don't know any of them. Uh, I really don't, but I know there are some. Uh, I know a, rather, To me, was is a, a funny story that Dad, and my father, was in in uh, with three other men, and he was going to a ball game in in Baltimore. And he was doing some pretty heavy bragging about the Sudlers and how they were pretty straight people and one thing and another. And I wasn't paying too much attention to driving. He was driving, and a cop stopped them. Now, I've forgotten what they got stopped for. It didn't make any difference. But they got their ticket. It was a great big colored policeman. And when he signed it, he he was his name was Sudler. <laughs> so there was quite a quite a lot of uh, joking about that, of course. After all the fine things that Dad had been saying, and, yeah, <laughs> the guy that gave him a ticket was a, was a settler. <laughs> so, colored people, and to me, in my lifetime here, were never uh, any kind of a hindrance or any kind of anything. They, they were just what was here. That was part of the way life was. So, nobody, there was never, I didn't know of any any animosity when I was a young fellow. Uh, I didn't know of any. And uh, we, as you pick and choose your friends, we pick and chose ours, and they pick and chose theirs, and everybody got along pretty well. Uh, their wages were low, or lower, but so was their educational level, and and uh, like the colored man today that uh, as he gets his education and as he acts more like he should act like a human being should act or I think what a human being should act he is accepted more and more and the only thing that keeps him from not being completely accepted is they are different and that when they act like everybody else there isn't anything, any problems now, I, I, there's never any such thing as no problems but there aren't anything Really major that N- nothing is sweet and harmony. <laughs> Aaron
0: Sanders with you with this special edition of Secrets and Shadows. Talking today with Kerry Harrison, whose recent exploration into his family history revealed an inconvenient truth which he's sharing with us today. Part of the challenge, I think,
2: for any of us is to be honest with ourselves I mean how many Greek philosophers screamed and yelled about knowing yourself so that you can evolve so in studying that and understanding a little more and being related to that going way back um, I realized that my family on my father's side were slavers but they were also framers of what we call the American government today you know the, the Declaration of Independence, signers. On my mother's side, I'm related notoriously to Benedict Arnold, who was a hero until the Congress refused to pay the soldiers. And Benedict Arnold was living large, apparently, in Philadelphia, had a big house and all this other stuff, couldn't pay, and because it's England, was going to get thrown in the slammer in debtor's prison. So he decided to leave the Continental Army in George Washington and go help the British, and they would forgive his debt. Business move. So a traitor, yes, but we now understand why. It's related to him, but also my great-great-grandmother, I guess how many generations. First cousin was Nancy Hanks, Abraham Lincoln's mother. So I have slavers on one side and the emancipator on the other, all in my DNA. And that's a very interesting collision. So I decided to do an investigation, a personal one, and go back and physically explore this. Go find people, go back to the plantation that was built in 1713 that's still there called Sledmore and learn about who I am, where I came from, and what are the lessons to be learned. Distant relatives still live out there, not interested.
3: This was a, the servants' quarters down here, and somebody knocked a, wall in, a hole in the wall, so we recessed and built this down here. Goes back down to the kitchen. Let's see what I mean. I just kept moving stuff in here. Where were the uh, slaves kept around here? Most of them in the basement, they had slave quarters. Um, we don't have any actual shackles or anything down here. And it's, um, of course, it's expensive, even 16 rooms. How bad. 3,000 gallons of fuel a year. But Orlando Rideout from the Historical Society in Maryland authenticated the bricks and the house, the age. In fact, this even the cemetery plots that we've hit by digging in to put posts and stuff mm-hmm. It was um, like little houses, you know, had clamshell and mortar shell. Of course, they're covered up. Um, I can show you the outside of the house where the original um, section was built in 1713, and then the upper part was built in 1805. even had a plumbing or a bathroom outside on stilts. Watch your step
2: What's I see here at outlines of I mean something was built on there.
3: Well if look around here. This is the original house. See it? Yeah. That's what it looked like in seventeen thirteen. And the rest and you can see where they added on in eighteen oh five. Where if there was any slaves here they'd been in the basement. Oh. What about Rose Villa? It didn't uh, it um I believe they do have some um, areas down there, one or two rooms where you can find the, they still have the bracelets.
0: We're talking with journalist and public radio host Kerry Harrison about his recent return to his family's former slave plantation. This is Secrets and Shadows. It's not really an instinctual thing to do. You don't, you don't want, I mean, like you said, you can't unring this bell now.
2: You know, a lot of us weren't taught in school Uh, We were taught that Thomas Jefferson had slaves and that there was uh, certainly plenty of slavery going on in the 13 colonies. Most specifically, I think we all thought it was in the South, but just outside the nation's capital, the White House itself was built by slaves, and uh, Maryland was pretty much ground zero
0: for this sort of business. So if I understand you correctly, the value in this exercise – Comes from moving away from the the privileged position, the sort of default privileged position that a white man has had, and to begin to cultivate, excavate, understand, and acknowledge these other narratives. Um, you know, using the Howard Zinn model, if you like, to to, to begin to understand a fuller picture of what happened, and that understanding creates empathy, creates reflection, uh, creates um, perhaps a way of even moving forward.
2: I'll tell you, Aaron, I was doing afternoons on radio in New York, this was a few years ago, before I moved to Los Angeles. And uh, it was a radio station called WEVD, and it stood for Eugene V. Debs, a famous socialist in the 1920s who was put in jail for being a socialist. I mean, imagine a radio station with those call letters. It's gone now. Disney bought it and turned it to sports. So (laughs) problem solved. But I was on there, and I just started to dip my toe into this genealogical expedition and talked about what my family had done. And I went on the air across New York city and I apologized on behalf of all white people who care for human theft, for slavery, for perpetuating this by staying silent, by allowing stuff to go when we could do something better and be part of the solution. And The amount of calls, I mean, a few calls were, yeah, I understand, I agree. Um, African-Americans couldn't believe they had just heard this (laughs) on the friggin' radio. Right. But mostly it was white people attacking me. Yes. Like, you weren't there. You don't have any responsibility. You weren't even alive. I mean, that's the way it was. It was just history. It was the time in which people lived. Excuse, excuse, excuse. But, If today were different, you probably wouldn't need to rewind and expose this. But today is awful for a whole lot of people. I mean, we live in an era where we have a Muslim ban. I mean, actually think about it. This is no different from Germany in World War II.
0: That's just it, though. I just want to point out that the white mindset, if you're a white guy like we are – We've never had to think about these things. Mm-hmm. That's what's so seductive about it is we walk through the world with with uh, that privilege, and it doesn't mean we're bad for it, but um, we're bad when we don't acknowledge it, and when we don't push past it. I think, and that's that's where the anger comes from. On the when when you announced on the radio what you did, it feels like uh, I mean they're mad because. You f- they feel like you're attacking them for who they are, but they're right. not. They're not acknowledging who they are, and they're not acknowledging that the world was built for them.
2: Literally, measured in arms and legs. I mean, imagine if your ancestors, Aaron, were brought here in chains. Just to be
0: aware of that on a daily basis—that's—that's that's heavy. The conundrum, of course, if. I think if you're a white guy, uh, what do you do with that? I think you just, I mean, I think admitting it is all we can do. We can be honest about our stories, like you've been, and then we can acknowledge it and step back and let others step forward. Yeah. Carrie Harrison is a Los Angeles based public radio host and journalist who leads hidden history tours around the world. I'm Aaron Sanders. Thank you for listening. Coming up, early civil rights champion,
2: Star Trek's Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura, in her last ever recorded interview, graciously given during her birthday in her mid-80s. While she quietly enjoys her retirement, she no longer makes public interviews. She talks about the phenomenon of Star Trek and her relationship with Dr. Martin Luther King and his imperative that she be the first public black face during a time when it really mattered. After that, we hear from the father of all whistleblowers, the Pentagon Papers' Daniel Ellsberg. I know I speak for millions when I say it is an absolute treat to meet you, Nichelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura from Star Trek. Most of us grew up with you in our living room, one way or the other, whether it was live or in reruns. You helped us define the absolute clear difference between good and bad. There was always a moral essence to what you did and what your show did. And we're so thrilled to be able to talk to you today in this exclusive one-on-one. Thank you.
5: There's nobody better than the fans of Star Trek, you know. They really know what they're talking about and what we're talking about to them, you know, what the show is about.
2: In the 1960s, um, we had the Voting Rights Act mm-hmm. just rolling out, Yeah, Gene Roddenberry, who people may not know, but this guy was not a washcloth. Mm. He was a World War II bomber pilot.
5: Absolutely.
2: And he was one of those cool guys who went back to see what happens when you do this bombing. Yeah. And had this enlightenment. That's that, that Peace is really the better choice. Yes. And made this, obviously, very radical choice. Mm-hmm. We're in the middle of the Cold War, you know, and he puts a communist, he puts an African American, he puts a... Uh, a Uh, Japanese guy, uh, uh, Hebrew, Mr. Spock. One of all of us. (laughs) That's right. One of all, in outer space, as officers. So not only were you a woman, a black woman, Mm -hmm. and an officer Mm -hmm. in 1965 Mm -hmm. in color. Yeah. Wow.
5: Yes, it was a wow. People, um, they came down and would stand outside if they couldn't get in. Just to wait till we came out to shake our hands and to tell us how wonderful our show was or how how much they appreciated what we were doing, you know um and a person specifically they would tell you what you're up to. <laughs> yeah <laughs> I agree, and uh it was wonderful.
2: Yeah. And you are a pioneer, really, of much of the woman's movement, mm-hmm. um, a voice for the African-American world. Mm-hmm. We're talking planet Earth, of mm-hmm. which we now have seven billion humans. Mm-hmm. And you were very much the template for how we get to look at ourselves.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. And it was it was wonderful to be that person, too, you know, to be chosen, to... to um, Oh, live that life, you know, and to represent not only your own personal people, people like you, but people who aren't like you. And, And we had that kind of following. There wasn't a matter of black, white, yellow, brown, or green, you know, it was us, you, me, you, me, you, me, you know.
2: I understand that uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Mm-mm. would talk to you here and there because mm-hmm. it wasn't always very comfortable for you. I mean, mm-hmm. you were kind of alone mm-hmm. on TV. It mm-hmm. wasn't like there were other people mm-hmm. in prime time mm-hmm. in living color mm-hmm. on, MS, on NBC. Mm-hmm. I'm saying MSNBC, you know what I watch. <laughs> um, and he came to you and I think probably coached you to stay the course, right?
5: Yep. As a matter of fact, you really got that because I was going to leave the show. He said to me, "You can't. Don't you know who you are, what you mean to people? You can't go." When he got through us, I, I couldn't go <laughs> Even though when you first start out on, on it, you, you think, "Nobody's going to care. Everybody cares because you're representing them. You're talking to like we're talking to one another. You're talking uh, a person to person about something very important to the world, you know, who we are and what we're doing. And it makes a difference.
2: Well, speaking of making a difference, other than the fact that I'm starstruck, and I've talked to a lot of people, but
5: I'm delighted. <laughs> Good.
2: Um, you had the first in human history mm-hmm. that we know of mm-hmm. interracial kiss yes. on television. Yes. Game changing.
5: Yes, yes. But so did my family. <laughs> <laughs> Truly.
2: When you were handed the script, you may not have thought of it as an interracial kiss. No. But when it's on TV, yeah. I mean, it was, it was first, clearly planned.
5: The first interracial kiss on television anywhere. <laughs> and I said, it is. Oh, that's interesting. And I didn't think of it as that. Wow. You know, but people kept coming up to me in our relating in the conversation how incredible that was and I'm going it is (laughs) you know and uh, but in my family it just simply wasn't because uh, I come from a widely interracial family if you realize you're different (laughs) you know uh, it plays with your mind you know how dif- different from what? I'm no different from anybody else. i are no different from from me. And then my family, there's everybody in the world. <laughs> you know, black, white, yellow, brown, and red. And and I'm not joking. You know, so it didn't seem strange to me in any way to be out in the world.
2: The white house today and the whole sort of interesting political structure we're like back in these basic struggles once again
5: we'll be out of them before you know it because we don't put up with that we don't we don't um we don't live that life and life has to move out of the way for everyone and and uh That's just the way it is. Like it or not, that's the way it is. Yeah, life is for everybody.
2: Your favorite Star Trek episode?
5: Anytime I get to get off the bridge. (laughs) 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 They had me locked on that bridge. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) I had this really... uh, responsible job. I never got off <laughs> the damn bridge. <laughs> so I went and I told them, and I think there was an episode when 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 uh, they did something about my life off the bridge, you know. And I went, "Whoo!" <laughs> That was interesting, but I do that every day. Let me get back on the bridge. <laughs> I, I love the show, and I love being part of it. You
2: must experience many times, we all know you, but you don't know us. Like, know. we walk up to you I like, well, you. hey, let, you know. Let's. I know
5: you. I know you. I know every last one of you out there. <laughs> because I'm, I'm, I'm part of you. You're part of me, I know. Live long and prosper.
2: Star Trek's Michelle Nichols, Lieutenant Uhura, joined us as she has yet another birthday in her 80s after celebrating more than a half century in the Star Trek franchise and raising multiple generations through her sweet spirit and gentle nature.
0: Secrets
4: and Shadows with Carrie Harrison. Travel. It's that easy. So call now and start packing. 800 650 6367. 800 650 6367. 800 650 6367. That's 800 650 6367. Secrets and Shadows.com